Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Given the recent tragic incident of the killing of George Floyd and the subsequent protests, we think it's a really unique opportunity to talk about protests. Uh, what are the effective ways to protest? How have the shape and form of protests transformed throughout the past decades as Black people fought for their rights? And certainly how justified is violence or, or how effective is the practice of nonviolence in the context of protests? Unfortunately, some of the protests recently have contained violence and looting and President Trump has even threatened to deploy troops on the protesters, further escalating the tension. Many have accused the protesters for not doing it correctly or the right way, but is there truly a right way to do protesting? It's really not as if when Black people protested in nonviolent ways, such as kneeling during the NFL anthem, they were embraced with open arms by the police or uh, by those who are in power. So are people simply hiding behind the attacks on the means when what they actually truly oppose is the argument itself that Black Lives Matter? Uh, Policy Punchline is not partisan, but we truly believe that Black Lives Matter and there are important constructive dialogues to be had at the moment. We sincerely hope to play a small role in, in that by bringing you this conversation with one of the most renowned scholars today studying issues related to protest movements race and politics. His name is Professor Omar Wasso. Uh, previously, before he joined the academia, uh, he co-founded BlackPlanet.com, which is a social network he helped grow to over 3 million active users. So he was a very famous technology analyst, and now he is a very famous political analyst, and he is now an assistant professor in Princeton's Department of Politics. Uh, thank you so much for joining me remotely, Professor Wasso. Thank you for having me. Uh, and I want to introduce two of my co-hosts, uh, Ben Gauman. He is a rising junior in the Woodrow Wilson School. Okay, thanks for having me. Uh, and Sam Lee, he is a rising junior uh, in the economics department. Both of them are the co-heads of research for Policy Punchline. Thanks for joining me, Sam. Thanks for having me, Tiger. Uh, so, Professor Wasso, why don't we uh, jump right in? Uh, you study protests, you study the transformation of protest movements, you study the relationship between race and politics. Would you mind just giving us an introduction about your research and some of the interesting findings or thoughts that you have uh, regarding this current uh, situation? Sure. So I think it's helpful to kind of situate this whole discussion in a kind of a larger context around uh, how were, you know, so the question I ask in the paper is how can a marginal group, how can a group that's a statistical minority or one that's um, kind of uh, often, you know, kind of hated or loathed in a society, how can they advance their interests? And so in the 1960s, African Americans were about 10% of the population. In the South, uh, there was a, you know, institutionalized system of second class citizenship called Jim Crow. And that system of segregation was one that had persisted for decades and was really deeply entrenched so that it wasn't just, you know, the laws, but it was also vigilantes who might, uh, you know, shoot into your home if you violated some, you know, uh, subtle norm. Um, it was, in, you know, segregated schools. It was newspapers that were pro-segregation. So there's, there's, you know, business institutions that supported segregation. So all of this was like deeply interlocked. And if you are uh, someone like, you know, Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks or any number of other activists in the South trying to figure out how can we dismantle the system, it's a real puzzle. 
and among the debates that were happening in the black community were to what degree should one mobilize using more uh, nonviolent tactics or potentially uh, use more, more aggressive resistance. So for example, um, there's one gentleman who is both the head of an NAACP chapter and the head of an NRA chapter, in part because it's only through the use of armed resistance that they were able to, in some cases, you know, repel uh, the Ku Klux Klan from assaulting uh, a family or something. So, so, so that's an active debate in the 1960s. And what uh, it, it kind of looking at some of the political uh, kind of strategies that protesters used, and I'll, I'll just kind of start with that early period in the 1960s. What what they found was that nonviolence could be effective particularly if the media covered it. And so they were able to use media, so use protest to influence media and media to kind of generate attention in the larger uh, national and you know, kind of both Northern and Western uh, 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 focused uh, populations and media. So, so, so that process, protests on media on kind of public opinion was effective. Um, and what they found in particular was that if they had a nonviolent protest and it was met with violence, right? So there's um, a, a some you know police repression, some police violence that was particularly powerful for capturing the media's attention and uh, also kind of enca encapsulating the whole issue of the brutality of segregation in you know a single image or a single clip that could be broadcast nationally. Now, going back to, to what you said, one of your findings in your study on the 1960s protests is that anti-segregation civil rights protests were more effective in influencing voting patterns when the police or the National Guard or whoever sub subjugated protesters to force. This is certainly a troubling finding, isn't it? As it, as it seems that protests can effectively create change through having violence inflicted upon them while remaining nonviolent. Do you think this reflects on a tendency for the American system to only accept change that uh, asks for change nicely as a weak, um, subjugated group of people rather than demanding change and demanding that the system uh, is radically changed? So I think it's a great question. And I, you know, we could think more broadly, more generally about kind of two models of power. Right, so one is a model that is coercive and another is persuasive, right? And if you're the dominant group, if you have a really powerful army, if you control the police, uh, coercion can be the way you, ex you know, project power. Um, and, but if you're a statistical minority, if you're 10% of the population, or just to give some other examples, even if you're 50% of the population in the case of women, and you don't have the right to vote, but you don't have coercive power. You don't have an army, right? How do you gain power? And I think for those kinds of subordinate groups, uh, you know, people who had HIV/AIDS, very much highly stigmatized. Part of one way as a path to power is through persuasion, and so it is unfair to expect that the people who are suffering the most in society have to make the case and make the case in some ways by making themselves targets of violence. Um, it's deeply unfair, but of course the entire system is unfair, right? Segregation is unfair. And so, and, 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 and the, in the absence of those kinds of dramatic acts of resistance, the sort of uh, white moderates in the North and in the West were often pretty content to just let segregation persist. 
So if you've got media that pays no attention to black interests, if you have uh, a white country, America is 90% white at that time, if most whites are indifferent or hostile to black interests, saying that, you know, as, as some have said uh, uh, in, in another context, this wasn't in your question, but, but you know, in a fair world, whites would take up the job of dismantling uh, segregation and white supremacy. But when they don't, what do you do, right? And, and that's the question that confronted folks like um, Ella Baker and Bayard Rustin and again, you know, uh, Rosa Parks. And part of the answer was, well, if we engage in certain kinds of targeted resistance, we can do what I think of as almost kind of a judo move. It's like an asymmetrical act of power. We don't have an army, but we can win hearts and minds. And that allows us to build a winning coalition that through persuasion can overcome the coercive power of uh, Jim Crow. So moving back to today, do you think the protest, protest today should take that type of approach in presenting themselves in a way that white America can stomach and can accept? So I think politics today are quite different in some ways than, than before. So let's, let's, let's just think about some of the similarities and some of the differences. Um, so among the, the similarities, I think there's something deeply human about seeing somebody suffer um, and, and having some uh, sympathy or empathy, right? And so I think one thing that links the protests of the early 60s to the current moment is that the kind of footage that did so much to move public opinion in the early 1960s was often footage of police violence against, you know, uh, peaceful people, um, some, you know, mostly black, but, but not always. And, um, and the violence that we observed, a, you know, a police killing of George Floyd, where that footage um, shot by a 17-year-old, Miss Frazier, um, you know, we see his face, we see him fighting for his life, we hear him cry for his mother. I think that has been a very powerful kind of, um, you know, very intimate, visceral and brutal way of having a sense of, oh, this is what people mean when they say the police use indiscriminate and excess and discriminatory force against African-Americans. And that video is, is I think, you know, an echo of the, the video that showed uh, the beating of Rodney King in 1992 and the video of footage from this earlier era of the early 60s. Um, so, so that's very similar. And I think that just speaks to something deeply human about a capacity for empathy, even if we don't have the same lived experience. Um, what's different, obviously, is that, you know, like <laughs> we have social media and, uh, that, you know, everybody has a, a, a video camera in their pocket. Um, and, and, and also these movements are much more diverse. Uh, whites have become much more liberal, particularly white liberals, liberals express a lot more concern about racial equality. And so I think the dynamics are somewhat different. And it may be, I mean, what we're seeing right now is that the violence of the first few days, um, ransacking of stores, you know, a Starbucks being vandalized, a uh, police station going up in flames, absolutely captured the media's attention. Um, so violence is a very powerful way of drawing in the media. Um, but the last week of protests have been remarkably peaceful. And, um, and in fact, what's I think also an echo of the early 1960s is much of the video we see of violence is allegations of police committing acts of violence. And so 
there's a, a another kind of echo, which is, oh, we have a lot of footage now of these large peaceful protests and a lot of video of police doing things like, you know, arresting reporters, uh, um, you know, assaulting reporters and, uh, and of course, other kinds of incidents like using tear gas on peaceful protesters. And that means that we, whether people intend it or not, they're actually replicating some of that same pattern from before, even if they're not strategically seeking to kind of draw the media, uh, draw the, uh, the, the, the police into an act of, of repression. So, so in a weird kind of way, the police are playing to that script um, even though that's not the strategy, I think, being deployed. And even if we might think that is unfair or clearly people are being injured, some people are being killed. So like these are serious things. I think for the larger cause, that framing of peaceful protesters, repressive state, state engaging in excess violence really does work to help elevate the underlying concern, which is why are the police engaging in this systematic violence for decades, particularly against African-Americans? So to discuss more in depth your research, I want to discuss an article by uh, author Daniel Gillian, who recently wrote an article in GQ, in which he discussed violent protests being effective in moving towards more favorable election results in terms of results that would be preferable to the protesters. And so he discusses local elections in 1968 that seem to have impacted, that seems to have been, been impacted favorably by violent unrest. Uh, and in another paper, authors Enos Coffin and Sands point to evidence from the 1992 Rodney King riots in LA that show how unrest mobilized um, black and white voters to support, I believe it was, public school policies that would have disproportionately benefited uh, black citizens in LA. And so I'm wondering, do you see these, these findings as potentially contradicting yours, uh, or how do you reconcile these views with your findings? So I think all these findings actually can be reconciled. Um, and let me begin with kind of just a broad framing. So there's, there's evidence, and I, I cite a bunch of this in the, in, in the paper, that there's, there's an effort essentially to kind of co-opt uh, protest movements, whether they're violent or nonviolent. And by co-opt, I mean, there's, you're, you're, you're an elite, you're you know, the president of a company, or you're the president of a country, you're a member of Congress who's influential. And basically what you want is a peaceful society so that things, you know, are kind of the status quo, uh, you know, might change a little, but you kind of want, you want peace. And so what we see in every, you know, in, in Middle Eastern countries during Arab Spring, but also in the US, there were what, what, what one scholar calls carrots that were given. So you might think of anti-poverty programs or jobs programs as things that are enacted that, are, that speak to the demands of protesters. So I don't have any issue. So, and so that's, I think a lot of what Dan Fines and, and uh, sorry, Dan Gillian, um, but also um, the, the, the Eno Sands and Kaufman paper find is that there is this evidence of provision of carrots. Um, what they, what neither of their papers does is really engage, uh, sorry, Dan has a bunch of work. So, um, it, it, you know, it, it may depend on which particular thing you're talking about, but there, but the Enos paper doesn't do, Enos at all paper doesn't do is consider, um, you know, what, what shows up as potentially repression. Um, and there are a bunch of 
more punitive criminal justice policies that get enacted following the uprising in LA in 1992. So, so it may be possible that you get both carrots and sticks in, in, in the work of this scholar, the, the, the language of this other scholar. And so they're focused more on do we see carrots? Um, and you know, I, I concede that there is evidence of that. Um, but I also find evidence that there's, there's, there's more taste for repression. And that's a really important outcome too, particularly if our policy concern is criminal justice related, right? So getting better education policy is not resolving the underlying concerns about police brutality if in fact, there's also increased punitive criminal justice policy, right? So that's, that's I think one way that we can kind of reconcile these. And the last thing I would say is neither of their papers, uh, sorry, and again, get, I, mean, I admire, I should also say, I admire both of those, uh, both the Enos at all paper and Dan Gillian enormously, they've been very helpful to me. So this is not a, um, um, a rivalry of any meaningful sense. Um, but I think one thing that my work does differently, um, and I would also include, um, you know, this is a scholar, Take Lee, who, who does work on this. None of them really compare nonviolent and violent protest. Right. So Dan Gillian's work tends to treat violence as an amplifying um, force. And, and my work finds that as well. So you can think of his work sort of looks at violence as kind of increasing the volume of a signal about a demand. And I think that's right. My work doesn't really get at that except um, in one small set of data. And I find results consistent with that. My, the, the thing I'm doing that none of these other folks really do in, in American politics is to think about uh, not volume, but valence and a different kind of signal that a nonviolent protest sends versus a violent protest. Um, and so what I mean by that is the press, when they cover peaceful protests or peaceful protests met with state repression, tend to focus on a, a claim for rights. When the protesters initiate significant violence, the media tends to focus on uh, crime and riots. And what I find is that public opinion follows the media coverage. And so when the media are talking about civil rights in the 1960s, there's a spike in concern for civil rights. Um, in the later part of the 1960s, as there are more events that escalate to violence, as there's more media that focuses on crime and riots, the public concern spikes for law and order. And in 1968, at the national level, you know, in a critical election, Richard Nixon beats Hubert Humphrey. And, and sometimes people have said, well, you know, who cares so much about party politics? Well, you know, again, what we're talking here is about the coalition. Hubert Humphrey is the lead author of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So you're talking about the coalition that favors civil rights losing to the coalition pushing for law and order. And again, if our concern is criminal justice reform, having a national leader who launches, among other things, the war on drugs is uh, it's hard to reconcile that with a victory for criminal justice reform. And to reference the Dino Gillian article again, uh, I wanted to bring up the fact that in the article, the interviewer brings up the fact that civil rights leader John Lewis had put out a statement pleading with protesters to be peaceful. And and then Gillian responds in this way in which she discusses how John Lewis obviously is a civil rights legend and, and has, has skull fractures from crossing the bridge on Bloody Sunday, but that there is this idea that every generation of protesters has to figure out the tactics that works in their time and that the tactics, the peaceful tactics that may have worked 
support John Lewis may not work for the protesters protesting the death of George Floyd today. And so I'm wondering if you agree with that idea, if you see it, it resonating with you in any way, that there is this that there can be this, this generational shift in how protesters work and that looking back towards the tactics of previous generations of protesters may not always be in the best interests of the movement. I think it's really important to kind of ground the whole conversation in the uh, kind of like, you know, why are people protesting, right? And at the heart of this, there is some injustice that has mobilized people to say, normal politics isn't working, voting isn't working, we need to escalate to these uh, other means of making our voices heard. And that at the heart of that is this sense of some, some profound wrong is, um, you know, at the core of our society, and that needs to be addressed. And so I am absolutely not arguing that violence is illegitimate, right? So for example, um, there's a paper I really like uh, in political science that looks at Jewish resistance to the Holocaust, right? And there was violent resistance by Jewish rebel groups essentially to the Holocaust. Um, and I wouldn't for a moment say that's illegitimate. Um, Nelson Mandela, like famous, you know, sort of nonviolent warrior, was sentenced to prison for, uh, you know, being part of a violent flank uh, that had given up on the normal politics of trying to dismantle apartheid, uh, uh, you know, nonviolently, right? If you are in a society that is authoritarian and there aren't legitimate means of, you know, the redress of grievances, I think violence is, is an entirely reasonable approach. Um, and, and in fact, there's one other dimension, which is most moral codes would say violence in self-defense is an entirely reasonable thing. You punch me, I have, a, I have a right to punch back. I have a right to protect my family. Violence in self-defense is acceptable, right? So um, Malcolm X has this great line, which he says, you know, I, I don't call violence in self-defense violence. I call it intelligence, right? It's like, like that, that's that. So, so, so let's sort of a acknowledge right that there's like this profound injustice in a society that is the kind of the, the, the heart of the matter and in some cases we might think violence is a, is, is, is a reasonable response right apartheid in south africa uh is, is 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 an unacceptable equilibrium and there's not you know we, we can't vote we you know, you know the state is so repressive we don't have an alternate route to uh, uh express our concerns so so but and, and, the, and, and the South in the United States is not fully democratic, right? I mean, like blacks are uh, restricted from the vote. The newspapers are pro-segregation. So it's not quite clear, is the US South more like a democracy or more like apartheid, right? Um, and, and for black people, it's much more like apartheid, right? So, so violent resistance, I think, is an entirely legitimate uh, kind of uh, approach under those circumstances. Um, but it's not the only approach, right? And so what we're interested in is, uh, is, is kind of trying to see comparatively, like given that both might be reasonable, what, what gets you more traction? Um, and what the, you know, to my mind, sort of the geniuses of the civil rights movement were able to deduce was that there were other points of leverage against Jim Crow. So it gave, gave a simple example one that's a little bit different from the kind of cases I draw, right? The, the Montgomery bus boycott was a, um, you know, a boycott. It wasn't something that was like very media, you know, it wasn't very uh, uh, focused on generating media. 
381 days, people walked for miles to break the back of a uh, segregated bus system that treated black people terribly. I mean, just not ju you know not just second class citizens, but 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 people were abused both verbally and physically um, on these buses. Um, all kinds of assaults were routine, and people said enough, right? And after 381 days, they broke that system in 1955. A remarkable achievement, right? So there's there's like a class of protests that is boycotts that targeted businesses that broke segregation there. There's another class of, of protests, which is you know the kind of nonviolent protest of the March on Washington, most famously, right? And that's um, peaceful, um, maybe not as dramatic as a, as a violent protest, but one that if it's big or if there are uh, celebrities or other kinds of things can generate media. And then the third category is the, 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 what we were just talking about with John Lewis, where he goes out at Selma, gets, gets, gets beaten brutally, that gets broadcast nationally and even internationally, and that changes uh, national politics. And I think the key difference between um, you know, the apartheid context and the American South context um, and I'll, I'll come back to your question about the generations in a moment, right? But the key difference is that in the United States, it's a kind of multi, power is not entirely centered in the South. And so the, the kind of leverage that Southern uh, civil rights leaders were able to mobilize was to bring national media to bear on Southern segregation and to bring international media to bear on Southern segregation. And in doing that, they were able to draw on a kind of moral power and, for that matter, federal power to enact legislation, intervene in, in, in uh, you know, when um, Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner, two white men and a black man, were murdered by vigilantes registering people to vote in Mississippi, right? And so what they kept doing was sort of nationalizing the fight in the South and turning what was a local issue of Jim Crow into a national and into an international embarrassment for the United States. And that allowed them to gain leverage, right? So it, it's, it's and, and to some degree under, so, so now let's come to your question, right? So what's the same and what's different? I think a lot of the same issues, a lot of the same dynamics remain. There's, I need to kind of, um, this is something I'm reading this summer, but, but I think there's still very strong norms about the use of violence. And that's something that is in some ways a deeply kind of human tendency. It varies across cultures, but, but broadly there are norms and kind of rules about the just use of violence. And that's, I think, unlikely to have changed radically between 1960 and now. If anything, I think people might have more abhorrence towards violence now than then. Um, I think there are other things that remain the same. Media coverage, of intimate moments of brutality shock people. Um, and that's very powerful. And um, so, so yes, tactics absolutely have to change, but I don't think human nature has changed that much. And given that human nature has not changed that much, I think a lot of the strategies that were incredibly successful in the early 1960s continue to apply today. And at some level, I think, you know, the best piece of evidence I could offer for that is the video of the killing of George Floyd. Like, why has that sparked so much nationwide outrage? Well, part of it is Black Lives Matter has been working on this issue for years and other organizers and activists have been working for years. But, but, but at some core level, people are looked at that video and said, this, this, is, this cannot stand. And that's the same kind of 
using a protest as a kind of way to mobilize people, to get them to see an injustice that they may not have seen and to feel some empathy for the people who are the victims of that injustice and to move people to action. And that's, that's I think, very much a consistent pattern then and now. You already kind of touched on this, but I do kind of want to bring back this point because uh, one of the biggest proponents of the practice of nonviolence is Dr. Martin Luther King. And, uh, and he almost brings it to, a, a, one can say, extreme degree. I mean, he really asks his followers to do the impossible, right? to do the difficult, to almost bring upon the suffering onto oneself, to try to evoke uh, the empathy or the emotions from the enemy, from the, the crowd, so that the public can support this movement. And uh, you, you said the George Floyd video, you talked about uh, John Lewis. So it seems to me that there almost seems to have to be an element of suffering or, or such dramatic injustice that is so visceral. Uh, and, and only that could it really ripple through the economy, through the public in order for changes to happen. Do, do you still think that is true today uh, in today's context, especially because it almost seems that the noble path of bring upon suffering to upon oneself, it's so rare in today's political environment. So let me acknowledge an important part of what you said and uh, an earlier question, right? It is unreasonable to expect people to suffer to some extreme degree on behalf of justice. It is uh, a, a failing of our society that that is uh, an expectation or that it's essential to advance some larger cause. Um, it is also exceedingly hard to sustain, even if you can get people in a movement to do that, right? So, um, so, so kind of the two questions, picking up the earlier one and yours is, is that the only way to make change? Um, and one, I think, encouraging lesson of both the 60s, but also other movements is it's not the only way to make change, right? So there are um, movements, I, I, an example that's a, a simple one that's more fun is, uh, ACT UP is fighting against, for recognition of people with HIV AIDS and uh, for funding for research. And one of the key opponents of things like funding for research is a senator named Jesse Helms. And what they do is um, in one demonstration, they make a giant condom and they rolled it over his house while cameras were rolling, right? And in that situation, it's like, they're making fun of him. There's no violence. They made clear there's no property damage to his home, um, but they are drawing attention to the issue, right? And so, so I think one thing that I should probably um, emphasize a little more in, in, in these kind of public conversations is violence is one means to generating media attention. It's a very powerful means to generating media attention. If the issue you're trying to focus the national conversation on is police violence, then to the extent that you can see that with your own eyes, it's, 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 it's particularly powerful, but it's not the only way. Celebrities draw attention. Um, there are other kinds of spectacle. So for example, uh, a funeral, um, in some cases, often in countries where political organizing is illegal, a funeral might be the kind of event that draws lots of people and is a place where people can give very powerful speeches and can be covered by the press. So, so the, 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 the kind of larger point is that kind of extreme suffering is a very powerful signal of how committed one is to one's cause. And there's actually some amazing social psychology research that suggests in religious contexts, think about fasting 
or um, other kinds of acts of uh, uh, you know sacrifice or abnegation that people undergo. They're often, you know, why are those rituals a part of so many religions? Well, it's, it's, it's partly a way of saying, sending a strong signal to others, I am deeply committed to this faith. And, um, and I think in the political context, what it says to others, you know, if I, am, if I go on a hunger strike, right? It's, there's no violence per se, but it's a, an extreme signal of my willingness to suffer. And it shows you how committed I am. And it kind of draws, again, media attention to, to uh, focus on the underlying injustice. So, so it doesn't have to be violence. It probably does have to be, uh, at least in some cases, media worthy. Um, and, 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 and to Dan Gillian's point from before, it can be hard to come up with new, you know, things that attract the media. Um, and so, so that is, I think, one way in which you can't just do the same thing over and over again. In some ways, the, the, the media wants to be surprised. But, but, uh, but I don't think that's fundamentally about some kind of radical change in politics between then and now. I think it's more just, there's a lot more media, media people are a lot more sophisticated. And so then um, it becomes a little bit of a challenge. Well, how, how do you, to use a phrase John Lewis used, how do we dramatize injustice? Um, and I think that's, that's, that that's, will always be a challenge. Right, so we've talked a lot about the effect of seeing these acts of injustice. And it seems to me that my generation, our generation is unique in that we've grown up concurrently with the rise of social media. Speaking from my own experience, the killing of Trayvon Martin came right when I was becoming conscious of public issues. And it seems every year, uh, multiple times a year, we hear about these killings of unarmed black people and we, we not only hear about them, but we see these videos due to the rise of cell phones and social media. And uh, I, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts about whether this is a generational issue, whether our generation has grown up in an atmosphere that has made us, you know, the generation to tackle police brutality. It's a great question. I think one other really important analogy, even though the technology is radically different, but it's, Part of how I think about this is that in the 1960s, white people and black people didn't have a shared reality, right? So black people had a sense of being second-class citizens, of being treated, uh, you know, in many contexts unfairly, to, of, of experiencing, um, you know, again, state violence at, at every turn, vigilante violence. And white America was largely, uh, you know, unaware. And so you had, uh, and, and, and white media was largely indifferent to these concerns, right? And so if you were somebody who lived outside the South, you could think black people were content with, uh, you know, a situation that maybe wasn't great, but like wasn't, uh, wasn't, wasn't so bad, right? And I think there are other kinds of examples like that where there's a group where their, their, their personal lived experience is radically different than what maybe people with power understand, right? So, Another good example of that is the Me Too movement, where uh, I had friends, you know, uh, women who were very successful professionally, who started to share with me following Me Too some of the kinds of sexual predation they had been subject to in the workforce, and it was it was shocking to me, right? I I and I was somebody who was fairly aware of you know uh, issues of gender discrimination, and um, 
and was still surprised, right? And so that's another example of like, there was like private knowledge that women had and not to be, to be clear, not exclusively women, but, 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 but overwhelmingly um, that, that a lot of people who might've been sympathetic, either women or men did not know, right? And so part of the, the, the power of that movement was to take something that was invisible and make it visible. And I think the pattern now a third time with things like these, um, you know, uh, as you said so nice, I mean, not nicely, but, 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 but succinctly, um, you know, the, the police killings of unarmed black people um, is something that in the black community was a, was a, was a routine lived experience but was kind of invisible to much of the rest of the country. And with Trayvon Martin, with uh, the, uh, you know, the sort of steady, terrible, tragic uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, drumbeat isn't the right word, but the sort of just the routine part of now our, 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 our American experience of these, these, these uh, people being killed sometimes on camera, what was invisible is now becoming visible. And, and, and the, the, the video I think is really important because when, when, when black people just said, this is happening, often it's a, it's a well, you know, I, maybe there was a fight beforehand or, you know, it, it's, it's hard to know, right? Um, but when there's video of something like Officer Derek Chauvin for eight minutes and 46 seconds with his knee in the neck of George Floyd and just, you know, almost, sociopathically calm as the life drains from the face of Floyd, it's hard to look at that and think, uh, well, <laughs> there's some other explanation, right? So I think the video allows people to have a kind of intimate, visceral, you know, it's not, it's not being black, but it's having a window into the lived experience of black people. And so coming to the end of your question, I think there is something very powerful about how your generation has come of age with a much greater awareness of something that had been, you know, known to African Americans and in some ways unknown to the rest of the country. And what we see in surveys of, uh, of, of Americans, but, 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 you know, in particular white Americans, that there's much greater concern for issues of racial equality. Um, and that that's, uh, and, and, and in even recent uh, weeks, big shifts in concerns about inequality and how the police uh, respond to African-Americans and the need for reform. So, so I think what's exciting in a way is that there does seem to be a, a kind of a governing majority that's growing for, um, for reform. And that's, that's, that's definitely going to be kind of the mantle your generation inherits. You know, right before the interview, when you and I, you and uh, Ben and Sam we were all talking uh, you asked us to also express our thoughts on young people's involvement in, in this movement. And the question that really bothered me personally is that why the unanimity in, in the sense that I've never, you know, in the past years of using social media have seen such unanimous response to a tragedy. Uh, I mean, there has been atrocities committed to minorities before, there has been other atrocities before, but just so unanimous, everybody on Instagram is posting a black square where everybody is, is saying this thing. And people who uh, aren't posting those things or, or people who aren't really expressing their concerns uh, are, are often even, even seem to, to be insincere or, or inconsiderate. So, so there was a convergence of attention on social media. And Sam has brought up, you know, the, the rising 
more people are using cell phones, the rise of social media, as also kind of the factors. But what are the other factors that maybe could have contributed to this convergence of opinions or sudden awakening of America or even the world that this is such an important issue? Is it because uh, it's also the, the rise of progressive awareness that the progressive left has, has risen up? Or is it because uh, that COVID-19 has made people so um, you know, frustrated at just the world in general? What, what do you think? It's a great question, and I um, I appreciate the insight about Instagram because I think there is something that is different about this moment and how your generation will experience. Like like in another era, people will say, "I remember where I was when you know John F. Kennedy was shot," right? And it may not be that you have like a moment where you remember you know something specific about the last two weeks, but you might remember the moment where all of Instagram uh, paid attention to the same kind of underlying cause or, or injustice. And those are going to be, I think, um, experiences that, that, that echo for years. And, and going back to the earlier question I, I, and, and to yours, I see this as, 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 as incremental in part. Um, and so let me explain what I mean by that. I think one of the things that fueled some of the rise of more violent protests in the late 1960s was a frustration that change wasn't happening fast enough. And you can understand people's frustration, partly that, you know, we've had hundreds of years of subjugation of black people. You can also look at, you know, there was landmark legislation passed, but there were still police as there are now engaging in, you know, uh, brutal repression. Um, and there also were people observing their brethren being brutalized on TV and getting really angry that you know this can't stand right so so but but what what a lot of that missed was how much things were improving between 1940 and 1970 on a bunch of measures black income education um, you know child po uh, infant mortality those measures were converging to white so we saw a closing of gaps that suggested real progress but it's very hard if something's changing 2% a year for you to observe that or to even feel like that matters, right? Um, that, you know, something like changing 3% a year compounding can matter a lot in 25 years, but it's hard to see that year over year. So to answer your question, I think things like Trayvon Martin, things like Black Lives Matter, things like um, growing awareness of, you know, kind of conversations people are having in the media. Um, and to some degree, this is also, I suspect, a kind of growing frustration with Trump where it's not a direct response to COVID, but there's a sense of like, if we had a functioning government, there wouldn't be 100,000 people dead. And so there's just a, a kind of building sense of this, this, this can't, you know, it, it, it's specifically about George Floyd and it's specifically about police violence against African-Americans, but it's also a kind of uh, reaction to the sense of we want a different America and um, and that that's a kind of, you know, I think fueling partly around COVID, partly around Trump and partly around police violence, a sense of enough is enough. People really want uh, to take a stand for a different kind of vision of what this country is about. While we're talking about uh, the conversation in general um, and who's speaking, what are they speaking about? I wanted to bring up this idea of, of etiquette, which seems to be very young people like our age are seem to be very conscious and sensitive, not only to the issue itself, but who is speaking about it and 
who can who should be saying what about it specifically the idea that we ought to especially on social media prioritize black perspectives on the topic and this idea that's commonly this phrase commonly used that non-black people should spend more time listening rather than speaking on the issue educating yourself the idea of sending out anti-racist reading lists has become very ubiquitous over the past couple of days but at the same time there's a very, there's calls for people and in the same way especially people who aren't black to use their platforms and their and their voices um, and their privilege to bring attention to racial injust injustice so we have these two perspectives one which kind of calls for the prioritization of of, of black voices and the any kind of mellowing down of non-black voices and the and the, the idea that they need to spend more time learning about it and educating themselves before offering their takes but at the same time the idea that they that they should speak out and so i don't I don't see these perspectives as necessarily contradicting, but I'm wondering if you if you see tension between those two or how you feel about the idea in general of our generation being very interested in the idea of who should be speaking about what. It, it's another really good question. And I think what's sort of both wonderful and hard about this moment is in some ways, like we're trying to be more thoughtful about a push for uh, a, you know, a more equal society. And, and, and just to step back, like really big picture, right? Like there aren't a lot of successful multi-ethnic democracies. And so you could look at maybe Canada that's doing pretty well. Um, you know, maybe um, one or two other places, but, but on the whole, uh, building a thriving, multi-ethnic democracy where people feel included and equal and there's opportunity that's widely available is, is not something the world has really figured out how to do. And in a number of places like India, there seems to be a pulling back from the idea of being a multi-ethnic democracy. And there's more of a push to being like a, you know, a Hindu nationalist society. Um, so, so we've got this real puzzle of how do we build a big thriving, you know, um, complicated, messy stew of a country that uh, really allows people who are in the bottom half to have real opportunity and, 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 and real, um, uh, you know, in the case of something like the criminal justice system, equality before the law. And so, so you know, so that's, that's like the big picture, right? And then you get to like, what do I say on Facebook to my friend, right? And, 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 and we, just, we just haven't figured out in some ways a lot of these things. So it's not just that like, the etiquette of you and a black classmate is like unresolved. Like we literally don't quite know how to make it work in the newsrooms, in our universities, in, um, you know, almost every institution in our society is like trying to figure out how to do this better. Um, so, so, so I kind of begin those questions with, a, with, a, with a, a lot of humility. Like I don't think there's gonna be any one clear rule that works. I think we need to be open to lots of different possibilities. And if somebody's really dogmatic about you know, this is, this is the etiquette. Um, I think that's probably someone who themselves should um, think harder about, you know, context and, 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 and when might a rule apply and when not, and how do we all in some ways learn from each other. Um, and that doesn't mean that there isn't a lot to, you know, sort of elevate in the most marginal voices. Um, my wife wrote a piece, um, recently that just tried to highlight how often the folks who are, um, you know, a, a child abused by a priest or um, somebody disabled who 
uh, is is uh, in an institutional setting where the the caretakers may be um, abusive. Like like those people have really deep insight into the ways in which abuse happens, and we won't learn about those kinds of abuses unless we give them the space to talk and we listen. And those are in some ways voices that are very much at the margins of society. And so if we don't make an effort, we won't hear them, right? So I think there's a lot to be said for that, you know, let's share the spotlight, let's listen. I think there's another dimension to this, which I, I, I there are moments in the development of this paper where I got feedback that I hated. I, I can't, you know, I thought that reviewer is an idiot or like, you know, this person doesn't get my work or, you know, this, 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 this person at a talk just totally missed the point. Right. And I, I, I got, I, I, I burned with a frustration uh, that once I cooled off and to be clear, I, I, I'm a pretty polite person in general. So I don't, I don't mean to suggest I was ever impolite or, or, or you know, express bad etiquette, but, but, but I, I had, I struggled and almost always there was something useful in that feedback. And so that has taught me a kind of lesson about listening, which is that from a selfish standpoint, it's useful to me to subject myself to a certain kind of criticism because my work gets better. And that's, you know, that's a deeply kind of scholarly or academic idea. So it's not, I'm not saying that's novel. Um, it's also very much embedded in a kind of open source software development idea, right? That like, that you can kind of distribute debugging. And if you distribute the debugging, the software will get better. And lots of different people are kind of contributing code. You might get something that's more of a robust thriving ecosystem. And so, so the, the I think that's how I approach out. this. Yep. I was like, the tech nerd is coming out right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, actually, yeah, for me, you know, open source and, uh, and, and ecosystems are, are, are not unrelated. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I, I don't have a simple answer except to say that I think we are figuring it out as we go. I'm very uncomfortable with hard rules, but I think, it, I think there are some general principles that like, yeah, if you have something to share, be it money or time or expertise or a connection, like those are, those are good things to share. And you often will feel like a really, you will feel better about yourself and the world by doing good on behalf of others. So I do believe in a kind of like leverage one's privilege to try and make the world a better place. But I don't think, but I think, you know, I, 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 I want us to be open to, in this transitional period where we try to figure these things out, I want us to sort of experiment with multiple different kinds of etiquettes and see what works. I would love to just quickly follow up on your many fascinating thoughts, but zoom in on the question whether we've made progress. This is something uh, I struggle a lot with. I often ask all of our guests, have we made progress? I think in this context, as you said, everybody's kind of confused, not just in terms of etiquette, but just in terms of how humans coexist, different races coexist. I mean, I mean centuries ago, we, different people would just be killing each other rather than trying to seek out democratic ways to resolve conflicts. Uh, do you think we made progress because there are certain people say uh, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, police brutality was happening, this thing is happening. Today it's still happening, it's even worse, it's still public lynching. We haven't. Uh, and, and there are also other people who say Black Lives Matter is one of the most effective movements that have really made concrete progress, bringing attention, passing uh, very sensible policies and such. 
so it's, it seems very hard to, I mean, I, I'm not a black person. So sometimes it's very hard for me to even comment on this thing. I, I, because I, I, I don't want to offend anybody by saying, oh, I think we've really made progress. And people say, you don't know anything about what you're talking about. We haven't. Or I don't want to say we haven't made any progress. People say you're too cynical. So I really don't know how to de deal with it even. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, a, a good question. I come to this as a social scientist. So, you know, my bias is to say, well, what is the evidence? Right. And I think that's a good place to speak from. Um, and it might get any of you in trouble in some conversations. But I think there are things that are not about the content that are about just sort of the style. So listening to people, but also saying, uh, you know, there's evidence that the black middle class has grown really dramatically in the last 50 years. And that's, uh, you know, something that I think we as a society can be really proud of, that that reflects real progress. Um, and we can also observe that things like mass incarceration have uh, dramatically changed the life chances of people in the bottom 50% of society, particularly African-Americans. And that that's, that's you know, not just uh, kind of status quo, that's regress in some ways. And, um, and so the way I sometimes think about it is it's kind of a tale of two cities. And the person who says no change has happened is I think missing again, the growth of the black middle class, all sorts of other ways in which society's improved. And it's, you know, this is not just about African-Americans, right? If you're uh, somebody who's, um, you know, gay or lesbian, right? Being able to have a same-sex marriage is, 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 is a radical change from even, you know, 15 years ago. Um, uh, there are other kinds of changes we've observed. I'm very interested in the war on drugs and I'm, I'm amazed that medical marijuana and marijuana legalization have become so mainstream, right? And so they're like a bunch of broad social changes that are not uh, getting at all of the kinds of wrongs in the world, but are do reflect, I think, genuine progress. Um, some of them um, more material, right? If fewer people go to prison because of marijuana possession, that, that that's a very important change in people's lives. Um, but others like, um, uh, you know, the, the, the persistence of police killing remains a real problem. And I, I don't actually, I've not seen data on rates of police killings over time. So I don't know if that's gotten better or worse, but the fact that it remains such a kind of uh, constant source of pain in the black community, in some ways, you know, it's so awful that even if it's improved, it, it, it's hard to talk about progress on that front, right? It's, it's, uh, it's to go from um, horrific to terrible is not uh, the kind of progress we aspire to. And so I think, I think two trends are possible. And then coming back to how do you talk about these things? I think this, you know, coming back to Ben's question, I think a great thing is just to read more so that coming to a conversation, you might be able to say, you know, uh, I read Michelle Alexander and she has this statistic, but I also read this competing uh, scholar who, you know, who had this. And then, and then, you know, you can ask a question of somebody, right? What do you think of those uh, different kinds of data points? And so it doesn't, um, in some ways, it's but, an invitation to be, to learn more. But Professor Wasso, what seems to me is that when people compare statistics, they often get into a gridlock. Uh, it's, that's often what conservatives and liberals kind of get into is that I have conservative friends who often pull out, I, I don't even know where they find the stats, but they can always find some statistic or data that, that proves that somehow this issue does not exist, or this issue is in fact much better than the other. Uh, and 
I, I don't know sometimes. It's, it's very hard to convince them and it's, they think I'm brainwashed. I think they don't get their uh, proper set of facts. Yeah. What do you no, think? That's, 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 I mean, that's this issue of, do we have a shared reality? And so on something like climate change, right? There's not exactly a shared reality between the left and the right. And, um, and, and it's not just the left and the right, but it's like, there's a world of scientists who say this is a serious issue and not just a world of scientists, right? It's like, you know, there are all these places where like the uh, glaciers are melting or the lakes are shrinking, right? So it's like, it's like you know, like you, you, don't, you don't need to have a PhD in climate science to find a large body of mutually reinforcing evidence on, on behalf of uh, climate change. Um, but we don't have a shared reality and that makes it, you're right, hard to have a conversation um, in some cases. Um, but I still at my, at, at, at so, so one um, thing I might recommend is there's a, a scholar at Stanford named Rob Willer, and he's done nice work on how to have conversations across uh, uh, ideological divides. Um, and part of his work is to sort of show that you, part of what you need to do is kind of speak in the language of the other side. So if I, talk to you about climate change, uh, you know, affecting um, polar bears, that may not move you if you don't, you care less about sort of some global sense of fairness. Um, but for a lot of conservatives, uh, th there are sort of moral issues around purity. And so if I say, look at this clear cut mountain that's full of garbage, then people are like, oh, that's an environmental disaster. I, I, don't, I don't feel good about that impure, uh, you know, kind of destruction of nature. Um, and so in some ways it's about not actually, so I think you're right, facts can often be uh, just mobilized as, you know, we, we find the facts that fit our priors, um, but I think there are ways to still make cases to people that then kind of speak to what are their, what, what's their, what are their emotional understandings about how the world works. Um, and that's, that's, and the other detail about Rob Willer is he's done interesting work on protest where he finds experimentally with co-authors, more extreme tactics lead to um, less support for the movement. So he's found experimentally work consistent with what I find observationally. So I wanna turn more specifically to the upcoming election. Um, and so lots of comparisons have been made obviously to 1968 um, which is likely the reason that your work has become so relevant if that you studied that year. And so that year obviously also saw protests about racial issues and a presidential candidate, Richard Nixon, signaling he was the law and order candidate in the same way President Trump is doing. And so a lot of analogies have been made saying that President Trump is now, given that Nixon won that election and you found evidence that the violent protests helped him do so, um, that Trump, President Trump is now in a position to, to do the same thing. There are conflicting views on this. Princeton historian Kevin Cruz, notably, um, has said that given that Trump is the incumbent and Nixon wasn't, there is this idea that voters, swing voters may look at Trump and say that, see him as not the solution to the divisiveness, but the source. And so, and that may not benefit him the same way that it benefited Nixon. So I'm wondering, do you have any predictions for how this may play out? Do you agree with Professor Cruz's assessment of how these, may, these protests may impact President Trump? Yeah, so I think clearly, I mean, one of the things I learned in 2016 um, is anybody making predictions about elections is using a very small end data set. 
right? And um, by that, I mean, you might have a survey with thousands of people in it, but fundamentally we've had 45 elections, you know, much smaller than that in a kind of modern era. And so, you know, it's, it's very hard to know, given all the things that change, whether a case, you know, one case like 68 really applies to today. Um, there are some core similarities, right? Trump is running on law and order. There uh, are people, I just did an interview with uh, some, a group in Maine where a bunch of people in Maine, you know, kind of took out their guns to protect their town from uh, a rumor of an Antifa onslaught, right? Um, totally, uh, you know, bogus rumor, but if it circulates enough and people get, you know, they perceive uh, a sense of threat, then you know, it sort of doesn't matter what the reality on the ground is. Um, and so I think between Trump's rhetoric and probably some more conflicts that escalate to violence over the coming months, it's possible that order will be a more central issue for some voters. Um, but I also think we see some really important counter evidence, right? So the incumbency is one. Um, and others are, again, Trump is absolutely, as one Republican called him, a chaos agent. Um, and so it may be that he's not a very credible, you know, uh, uh, a provider of, of stability, but Republicans have owned the issue of kind of order, law and order for uh, 60 years. So, you know, that, that's, that's probably, if you're somebody who's concerned about order, it's not obvious that Biden is your guy, but maybe. Um, the, the, um, the other thing that, that, that's really different is that in the last week, we've seen the protests be overwhelmingly peaceful and the uh, uh, police, um, you know, again, there's all this, you know, hundreds of clips of police engaging in violence or allegations of violence. Um, and so I think the narrative in the media looks more like 1964 than 1968. Um, it looks more like a period in which protesters are pe peaceful and there's a kind of rogue uh, set of state actors engaging in out of control violence. Um, and that plays to the kind of rights coalition um, and not the, uh, the kind of law and order coalition. Right. So it, it kind of seems that, you know, we talked about the unanimous response amongst young people, but it, it, we haven't seen such unanimous response amongst you know, the established, uh, the political establishment rather, you know, we've seen Republican President Donald Trump speaking out against protests. Uh, we've seen Tom Cotton in his widely criticized op-ed in, in the New York Times calling for military action against the protesters. And it almost seems that uh, despite this unanimous response amongst young people, there's still very, very much so a partisan divide between Democrats and Republicans uh, about these issues. Do you feel that the responses of Republican politicians like Senator Cotton, like President Trump are, are representative of Republican voters? And if so, is, is there any hope for bridging this partisan gap and for gaining sympathy, not only from the left, but also from the right? So there are, Multiple ways change happens. Uh, in some cases on something like same-sex marriage, people who were previously opposed have updated. And so there's sort of uh, kind of, you can think of one trend, which is just a kind of 
again, that kind of 3% change trend. So, you know, young people overwhelmingly supported marriage equality, older people opposed it. As young people are more and more, you know, young people age, old people die, the sort of cohort replacement as it's called, that, that results in some trend of change. But there's also old people, in the case of, again, marriage equality, changing their views as it became uh, increasingly like the normal thing in society. Um, and that, so those are the kind of the two types of, of attitude change we often observe. And I think some of what you're describing, this kind of like intense sense for order is much more present in older people. Um, and, you know, just by definition, they're going to be around for a shorter period of time and those views will become less the kind of center of gravity of politics. Um, so, so I think one question to ask is sort of, well, what's, what's the future of the Republican Party, right? Does it look more like Tom Cotton or is there some other um, kind of, you know, more inclusive or, or less uh, kind of um, antagonistic to, you know, Mexicans and Muslims and gays and uh, kind of version of the party? Um, and I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, I think the, the, the kind of demographic change in America suggests the Republican Party has to become a more multi-ethnic, multicultural party. Um, and the kind of current reality is that that's not the case. Um, it's, you know, I think I saw a stat that something like 90% of members of Congress in the Republican Party in the House are white men. Um, so, I mean, it's just, it's just kind of, you know, kind of stunningly high um, underrepresentation of, of, you know, women, uh, people of color. Um, so the, so, so, so end of the story is um, the, you know, sort of where the center of gravity in the Republican party is, is in transition. And, uh, and similarly, in some ways, the, the Democratic party is sort of trying to build this very complicated, fragmented coalition, right? I mean, the big advantage for the Republican party is they have a kind of core white evangelical Christian uh, kind of, um, you know, sort of, it's, 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 if you are somebody who's right of center and, uh, and sort of ethnically in the main there, then it's, 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 it's a very coherent, cohesive party. Um, but if you're, you know, a party like the Democrats are trying to be, you know, Wall Street, uh, you know, Silicon Valley uh, tech execs and people who are working class in unions and Asian American and Latino and black and, you know, white liberals. It, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a more motley assembly. Um, and so I think both parties are struggling to kind of figure out what are the ideas they're going to carry them into the future. And, um, and I hope, I mean, you know, I want a thriving Republican party, but I want a thriving Republican party that's anti-racist and that um, right now with Trump in office is sort of not the promise. Um, and so that's, I think, you know, had someone like Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio taken the nomination, we might've seen more of a transition in that direction. But, um, but right now it's much more of a xenophobic ethno-national party. Um, and that's, that's, that's kind of defines the, 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 you know, what it's, what it's core offering. I suppose we really have to recognize that parties and even the concept of left and right are very dynamic systems. Um, the Democratic Party used to be the party of slavery, the party of segregation. Uh, it used to be the party of the workers. And then gradually it became the party of the highly educated, the highly wealthy. Uh, we, we saw this convergence of almost, you know, the high income, the high earners, the 
uh, high net worth and highly educated people all trying to vote for Hillary Clinton, whereas uh, you know people, working class people, voted for Trump in 2016. And uh, and we talked a little bit about political transformation, I suppose. So, uh, is your prediction on how Republican parties will continue to shape up, or, or how Democratic Party continue to shape up? kind of dependent on uh, racial issues? Do you think uh, racial issues will play an important role? Uh, because a lot of people uh, seem to view those electoral cleavages more in terms of income or wealth uh, or education. Uh, is, for example, Bernie is the one that really advocating for you know, redistribution rather than you know, in terms of racial policy, there's any, any difference. So we'd love to get a little bit more of your thoughts on, on that front. I think increasingly the United States has an ethnic division of politics, and that's like that's not so different from a number of other countries, um, where you have a kind of monoethnic dominant party and a multi-ethnic kind of egalitarian party, and by dominant here I mean a party that kind of represents, a, a, you know, either a former majority or a current majority um, culture, ethnic group. And that, you know, so you can think of, again, India is a multi-ethnic society, but it's sort of trending towards a Hindu nationalist society where there's some real contestation about will Muslims have rights? What, what kinds of minority rights will there be for non-Hindus? Non um, and so that's, that's an example of a kind of ethnic division of politics where party and ethnicity for at least one of the parties converge quite closely. India also has a Congress party that is more um, multi-ethnic and uh, has that as its project, right? And so um, the way one writer described this is you have kind of one party that thinks of America as an idea and another party that thinks of America as an ethnic group. Um, and if you, and, and I think there is abs there's no reason the Republican Party can't be more inclusive, uh, but it would require different leadership and a real commitment to being a more welcoming place. Um, and the, so, so when I say there's this ethnic division of politics, it's not that the Democratic Party is like the Black Party, right? It's, it's sort of the everyone not in the dominant group party. And so, you end up with this kind of motley mix of, well, you know, why do Jews uh, disproportionately vote Democrat? Well, in part, they're, you know, they're, they're not part of the Christian majority that has its own agenda about, hey, you know, let's bring back Christmas, right? Um, or why might a, you know, conservative Muslim business owner um, be in the Democratic fold, right? They may not uh, be in favor of any number of socially liberal policies, but they don't like the Muslim ban Right. And so so th there's there's a way in which the cleavage has become quite sharp that there's a party that in a bunch of ways is privileging um, a kind of white Christian set of uh, uh, kind of cultural norms and ideas um, and another that's become the, you know, again, sort of more the party of everyone else. I just want to quickly follow up on, on that part regarding potential solutions to the issue. Uh, I told you that I've been reading Thomas Piketty's new book, uh, Capital and Ideology. He's the famous author that wrote about, you know, capital in, in 21st century and talked about issues in inequality. And one of his theses was that the, the, the problem is the, the, the fact that we are focusing so much on uh, border issues, immigrants or, or, or race, sometimes it's because we couldn't come up with sounding 
redistribution visions that really cared for the poor people or the working class. So one could say that uh, many of the people in the South or in the Rust Belt in the U.S. really felt that they were abandoned by the Democrats or even abandoned by the Republican establishment uh, because uh, redistribution visions such as, you know, what Bernie and Warren proposed, such as the wealth tax, really didn't really come to the forefront of political debate, at least not for many years since the 1980s when Reagan did all the liberalization. Uh, so, so the issue is, it almost seems that in order to solve racial issues, we have to also ta tackle redistribution issues, economic inequality. And if we cannot come up with fair egalitarian ways to distribute this nation's uh, wealth, what ends up happening could be that Trump could say, I am going to be egalitarian, but he's going to be egalitarian only towards white people, only towards his voters. And that's what kind of uh, Democrats did back in uh, you know, the, the first half of 20th century when they actually came up with more egalitarian social policies, but those policies were for white people and they were highly, highly segregationist. Uh, so I would love to get your thoughts on that. Do you think the, the real root of the issue is economic inequality, that we really have to tackle that first? So a, 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 another really important question, and I would say um, it's a mistake to privilege one of these cleavages over another to the point where you obscure one, right? So, you know, somebody who was an advisor of mine in graduate school is a guy named Henry Louis Gates, and he's a professor at Harvard and is, um, you know, trying to get into his own home in Cambridge, Massachusetts and gets arrested. Somebody calls the police on him. He's African-American and he gets arrested in his own home uh, for breaking in, right? Clearly ludicrous. Um, it becomes a national issue and class didn't protect him from a, un, you know, an indiscriminate experience with the criminal justice, it, 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 it was from discrimination from the criminal justice system, right? So, so that, there, there are issues where class isn't going to get you a solution and we need to be able to think about race as an organizing force in, the, in how inequality works. Um, and, um, and at the same time, you know, or I have lots of friends now who are, uh, you know, well off and tell stories about versions of driving while black or, you know, Ahmad Arbery is um, as best as I can tell, middle class still gets, you know, shot by vigilantes, right? So, um, so, so class doesn't help you explain all of that. Um, but I think you're right that economic inequality can create a kind of scarcity mentality where people are unwilling to kind of have more open hearts. Um, and there are these moments in America where there's a feeling of abundance and you have less of that xenophobia, that anti-immigrant sentiment, the, the, the kind of rising nativism. And so, so I think it is important to have people feel more secure because if they feel more secure, they are in a position to behave less, um, and, uh, 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 you know, sort of viciously towards people who are in some way not like them. Um, but, you know, it's not just the working class that goes for Trump, right? It's the white working class, right? Black working class doesn't go for Trump. Um, Latino working class doesn't go for Trump. And, and so I think it's also important to hold people to account for their, um, the, 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 the non-economic ways in which they're making sense of the world. And it's like, if you think 
your opportunity would increase because uh, you know you, you build a wall for Mexicans, then that's that's um, there's an there's a set of ideas you know deeply rooted in American history. Uh, often deeply rooted in white supremacy that sort of say, make sense of the world through race. And just because you become wealthy or at least allegedly wealthy in the case of someone like Donald Trump, doesn't mean you're not going to continue to propagate certain ideas about who's a threat and who isn't. So, um, so fundamentally, I think you're right. We need to work on both fronts, but, but, but they're, not, um, they're, not, they're not substitutes for each other either. To kind of zoom back into the specific policy solutions being proposed after the death of George Floyd. So from basically just based on what I've seen on social media, there does seem to be kind of a, a gap between specific policy solutions such as you know, kind of busting police unions or more body cameras um, or kind of increment, more incrementalist logic and solutions that sees the problem in the philosophy behind it kind of, kind of seems to be more, you know, plugging the leaks of, of police departments and making sure they're they're running smoother and they're they're more accountable and that will prevent more police brutality versus a more structuralist idea that you know the the buzz phrase on social media over the past couple of days has become defund the police, which uh, obviously doesn't mean just defund the police and you know that's the end of the story. It refers to you know this this broader idea that defund the police and fund you know more mental health programs and social welfare programs and and reprioritize where we put money beyond law enforcement and that will create a more egalitarian society in which there will be less police brutality and broader prosperity for black people in general. And so I'm wondering, as a social scientist, like, do you, what do you see as the, the better solution, but also what do you see as the more feasible solution? Is this something new, this, this incrementalist versus structuralist uh, divide between activists? What do you make of this general debate? So I think one of the things that uh, I, learned a long time ago that it, it, this is a good example of is that oftentimes an idea can sit in the fringe of society for a long time and then in a certain moment it just sort of moves from the edge to the center and this is an interesting example of that that something that seemed really uh, out there has now become you know a mainstream part of our conversation part of our mainstream conversations um, it's a topic about which i've read a little but i'm still getting up to speed on and so i don't have um, a kind of strong evidence-based case one way or the other. I think the thing that is interesting, particularly for Princeton folk, is to look at the case of Camden, which did, a, I, I think of it as kind of reconstituting the police um, and uh, was able to do, have dramatic effects. And partly because if you had an institution that was deeply broken, corrupt, engaging in their own criminal activity, then you know, as, as you're noting, incrementalist reform is, is, is really not going to get you what you need. Um, and so dissolving and rebuilding a police force from scratch ended up being something that worked really well for Camden. So I think that's a model that suggests this can be a very effective reform. Um, the other kind of thing we observe in a lot of cities, as you noted, is that uh, things like collective bargaining agreements that prevent you know, almost any kind of meaningful accountability of police officers are a real challenge to changing a culture of a place, right? If, if people know they can get away with anything, as we've seen in, again, some of these, uh, these videos out, uh, alleging police violence, um, then it becomes very hard to, um, you know, it sort of doesn't matter what else you do if people feel like 
they, you know, somebody can get 20 civilian complaints and they, you know, they're still out there on the street. And so there the interesting argument is less even, I think, deeply, um, you know, it's not, it's, I, you could even leave aside the, we're going to spend more money on social services, though I think that's, there's a compelling case for that, right? Like, you know, why are, George Floyd is having a dispute with a corner store over a $20 transaction for cigarettes, right? That does not need to escalate to four police using, you know, exceedingly uh, violent methods to resolve it. Um, and there are many instances like that where if the police just didn't show up, civil society would resolve it. You know, like maybe the $20 goes unpaid and that's, that's, that's not great, but it's like, like that's, uh, that's that, that, that's much better than somebody being dead, right? Or maybe somebody um, who's not a cop comes and tries to help resolve that, who has you know connections to everybody in the community, whatever. But the, the kind of the, the, I think the core theory of the reconstitute the police, uh, you know, which might be defund, might be uh, you know abolished, but 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 really is is that you cannot edit the multi-hundred-page contract in a meaningful way, and so the way to really enact reform is to essentially reboot the police might be another way of thinking about it. Um, and that's analogous to some of what we saw in the ed reform world, where you have teachers who have, you know, multi hundred page contracts. And the part of the reason charter schools emerge was to say, well, can we have public schools that aren't subject to so many rules and don't have such elaborate contracts? And might that room for um, uh, you know, spending the money a little differently, prioritizing the curriculum a little differently, and so on, allow for better results. Um, and clearly, you know, there are lots of charter schools that fail, but there are a lot that are extremely successful. And I think that's actually in some ways, even though the charter school movement is perceived now as more right of center and this kind of abolish the police is more left of center, they're actually making very similar kinds of arguments, which say we have an institutional structure that is over, you know, has, has kind of um, accrued uh, or accreted, you know, hundreds and hundreds of rules over decades. And the best way to actually reform that is to essentially start from scratch. Um, and that, uh, I think, is a, is a compelling argument when you've got police forces that are so autonomous that they can behave, they, they behave with wild insubordination to mayors um, and, you know, to reporters and to citizens. So just before we end, I wanted to ask one more question about Princeton specifically, given that you know, we're a Princeton podcast for all Princeton students. And so there's been a lot of movement over the past couple of days from student groups and, and the university itself has put, up, put out statements of solidarity. And, and every student organization I can think of has, has done something referencing anti-racist reading lists and referencing fundraisers, things like that. So I'm wondering, university, as you know, is constantly in this, in this engaged in this back and forth about what it should be doing to advance racial equality and students, student groups pushing university further, bringing up it's, it's the fact that it has benefited from slavery in the past, um, pushing it to ban the box. Uh, and so, and there's, there's constantly this tension. So I'm wondering, do you, what do you see the role of Princeton and peer institutions in this, in this debate? And how do you think this recent movement following the death of George Floyd might change the debate? I'm just your, and just your general thoughts on the issue of Princeton and racial inequality. So 
it's it's a it's a you know it's a very it's a very rich and challenging question, right? I often wonder why is it there's so many elite universities next to neighborhoods that are in bad shape and could use you know uh, that that University of Chicago. Um, how is it that the black community next door to the University of Chicago has been uh, impoverished for so long and that there there isn't some way in which all of the smarts at the University of Chicago and all of the capacity in that community haven't been able to find ways to build a thriving, again, multi-ethnic community. Yale in New Haven, um, you know, is, is there's, there's, there's a lot of suffering in New Haven and uh, Yale's ability to kind of transform or contribute to a community-wide transformation, um, you know, in decades has not come. Um, you could, Trenton is a little further from Newark, uh, you know, it's about eight miles, but, but for all of the smarts in Princeton and all of the talent in Trenton, there's not been, you know, they, they're sort of worlds apart. Um, so, so I think that's one really big question for me that I often wonder about, like, why aren't there more essentially, isn't there more cross-pollination? Isn't there more kind of uh, uh, interaction and spillover of the, the wealth and privilege and knowledge of the elite institutions into places that uh, have less opportunity, less wealth, less, uh, uh, you know, high quality education, right? So, so I think there are things like that that I wish I saw more of, but it's also really important to understand like what is a university and at root, part of what the university is trying to do is be a place where people can think really hard about the kinds of policies or solutions that might make a difference over, you know, years, decades, maybe even centuries. Um, and I think in as a criticism of universities, you know, that 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 process has often been too slow and, uh, and not sufficiently engaged with really making change in real people's lives. Um, but I also you know, I think it, it, it's, I, I don't think scholars should necessarily be doing, or I wouldn't expect also, I, I think, I think scholarship can be better if you're doing service. Um, you can, you can, it can inform your service and your, your scholarship in a way that allows you to have a better understanding of what's going on in the world. But I also think there's a different kind of work that scholars do that tries to um, really give people ideas that allow people out making change in the world to have better ideas about how to how to make change right so simple idea being I spent years on this research about protests and at any point somebody might have said uh, like you know why don't you do something more productive um, and then suddenly in this moment you know maybe this is helpful maybe there are people on the ground thinking should we engage in violence or should we not right there's a Princeton alum who allegedly was involved in uh, using, you know, violent methods with Molotov cocktails, right? And like, so, so, you know, you wonder if that person had sort of been able to consider evidence, might they have made different choices? And that like the intellectual infrastructure of research and ideas can be very powerful if it, if it cascades through a society. So, so I believe deeply in that part of the social change process, giving people the mental tools to kind of make change in the world. Um, and, and at the same time, it feels deeply inadequate. And so um, I, you know, I, I'm not quite sure what it looks like for that to be a much deeper part of the mission of the institution. And by that, I mean, you know, sort of thinking about uh, what Tiger talked about, right? How do we address profound economic inequality? 
um, what the kind of whole conversation here has been about, how do we make progress on profound racial inequality? And I think it's not enough to do what a lot of these elite institutions do, which is to bring in, you know, I don't know what the latest numbers are, but 40, 50, 60% of kids from the top 1% of families and then provide them with superb educations that allow them to remain part of the 1% of families. Um, and so you worry that even if you're giving kids a great education and getting them to think about justice, we're actually like amplifying the inequality by producing a kind of meritocratic elite that is locked where, where the bottom 50, 60% are just locked out of a, a set of opportunities. And so, so I think, you know, there's just, it's, 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 I know we're all not doing enough. I'm not quite sure what a place like Princeton could do better. Clearly it could spend more of its money on research that is really about trying to, you know, essentially in the same way that in the sixties, they tried to dismantle Jim Crow, you know, what would it look like at the core of the institution to be a deeply uh, you know, to, to, to have uh, more of its, its, its money in the fight of dismantling the, the kind of profound inequalities that, that, that structure society today. Before we wrap up, I feel the need to ask you, are you optimistic? That's a good question. Um, it's a hard question because I'm, I am by nature an optimistic person. Um, and so through lots of hard times in recent years, I have just had a kind of uh, sense of, you know, like things are gonna get better. Uh, this, is, this is with some family stuff. And, and they did. And, you know, I feel like, oh, like that optimism was, uh, you know, like it, it, might not, it might have been faith more than evidence a lot of the time, but it helped get, me, get us through. Um, and at the same time, I feel like I have this, you know, part of what's been hard about the last uh, I don't know, call it uh, decade, is a sense that human nature is often profoundly irrational and that we kind of live in a world in some ways that is miraculous, right? That we can have this conversation over the internet with these like amazing technologies that, that there's all this like art and music and culture that is like spectacular and that like you know <laughs> that uh, south korean uh, k-pop fans can come on twitter and like engage in trolling of, <laughs> of people who are trying to muddy the name of george floyd is like it's like amazing it's just it's like what a what a what a bountiful world we live in um and at the same time we just see all of these very depressing kind of so i feel like that's one side of humanity right this kind of peaceful, artistic, uh, creative, intellectual side, and, um, and, and you know, an and innovative side, right? Technology's in there too. And that, that side gives me a lot of hope. But there's this other side that's very territorial, that's very, you know, that thinks of the world in, in terms of scarcity, that uh, often doesn't rely on kind of persuasion, but relies on coercion. Um, and I don't know over the long life of humanity which side wins. Um, I, I, I would like to believe that the kind of peaceful, artistic, creative, intellectual, uh, technological side does better. But, um, but I think human nature in some ways evolved on the savanna. We have a lot of Americans, a lot of humans have a taste for um, 
you know, dominating others, uh, uh, you know, winning um, what to my mind are small victories, right? In a world of so much abundance, like a little bit of land here or there is really not worth that much. Um, but we see a lot of trends going counter to more freedom, counter to more, um, uh, uh, you know, human flourishing. And so I worry about that. And, uh, you know, so I feel like my part of my small contribution is to try and like contribute to a world that sort of says, hey, there are ways that peaceful, in this case, sort of nonviolent tactics can actually be really persuasive and effective, right? We can reduce the amount of violence and get the justice we want. Um, but, but, but I don't know that that, uh, I don't know that there are enough of us as humans who have that, who, who kind of believe that, that it will carry the day. At the end, can we just ask you what your policy punchline may be? My policy punchline um, on, a, on a particular topic or? or just your punchline for this interview, for some of the stuff we talked about for Black Lives Matter movement, for protests in general. We always ask our guests at the very end uh, what the punchline is. So my policy punchline as it re relates to protest movements is that I think we have a lot to be optimistic about. There we've seen, uh, you know, 1960s protest movements really do something unbelievable, right? This entrenched system of racial subjugation called Jim Crow was dismantled in a matter of years through the sustained uh, effort of people at the very margins of society. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of Star Wars level, rebels take on the empire and beat the empire kind of story. And, and that is a miracle. Um, and I think we are seeing again with uh, the kind of most recent decade of Black Lives Matter uh, and, and, and these George Floyd related protests, a kind of uh, a, a, a real resurgence of a commitment to how do we build a, a successful multi-ethnic democracy. So, so to my mind, uh, a policy punchline is protests work, they influence opinions, they influence uh, voting, and particularly when people do them in strategic ways, it can really make America a better place. Thank you so much for all the in insights, all the wonderful messages, and for uh, opening up those very important dialogues with us, Professor Wasso. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Tiger, Samuel, and Ben. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, and thanks so much for hosting the show with me, Sam and Ben. You guys have been instrumental to helping me get educated, get me educated on the matter and asking some really wonderful questions. Thanks so much, guys. Take care. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please visit us on policypunchline.com. Uh, follow us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, any platform that you may prefer. Uh, watch this vi uh, video on YouTube. Uh, thanks so much for listening today, and uh, we hope you can continue to follow us. Thank you. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, 
please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.